one. And there's the other one. We're in First Timothy chapter one. We left off right around verse 15. So I'm going to give you the brief backstory um, so you know where we are. The Apostle Paul writes this book of First Timothy. Um, it's one of three books called the pastoral uh, letters or epistles. They are letters to individuals who lead churches. And this is where we get the idea of having elders in a church and what church conduct and government should look like. So there's a church in Ephesus that Paul was ministering at with Timothy. Timothy is young and very timid, but Paul decided, I need you to stay here. And Paul left and left Timothy in charge of a very um, tumultuous church with all kinds of wayward stuff going on, doctrinal stuff going on that isn't good. There's some false teachers that have crept in. They're teaching that Jesus is great. Yeah, that's great. We're Christians too, but you got to become a Jew to really be saved. And you got to keep all the Jewish laws, all the dietary laws. You really have to become a Jew to become a Christian. So he's trying to stop this false teaching. There's other false teaching going on. We'll get into that as well. They've also got all kinds of little myths and stories, and they're majoring in the minors, these false teachers. So Paul's trying to correct them. He's, he's received a letter from Timothy, basically wimping out, saying, it's too crazy here. Let me come on the road with you and minister. And Paul's writing this letter to him to basically say everything I just told you, but also stay there and, and fight the good fight kind of thing. So um, let's dive in so that I know you're awake. Those of you that are here say, amen. amen. Oh, that was good. People really are awake. Um, and those of you on zoom wave or say, amen, I can't hear you, but I bet you, I bet you said, amen. I can see your mouths move. All right. First Timothy chapter one, um, pick it up in verse eight. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully or properly. See the law, the Jewish law, you have to put it in perspective being a Christian. Jesus fulfilled the Jewish law. We talked about all that last week. Um, and the law is not made for the righteous, but for sinners, lawbreakers and what have you. And there's a long list of sinners there starting in verse 9, 10, uh, all the way uh, for a couple of verses there. Then he thanks Jesus Christ, Paul does, that uh, verse 12, who gave him strength, that he considered him, Paul, faithful. He's reminding Timothy indirectly here, remember the great God that you serve and stay the course. He talks about himself, verse 13, being a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a violent man. He was going around gathering up Christians and having him imprisoned and sometimes killed just hated Christianity, and then God got a hold of him and changed his heart, and he became a great apostle. Um, so in verse 15, he says here, and we covered a little bit of this last week, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Now, that seems like a duh, we said last week, like duh, of course he came to save sinners, but it's important to talk about the fact that he didn't primarily come to heal people or to teach even, although he did both of those things. He came primarily to die on the cross and save humanity, save all who would believe. So everybody ought to accept this saying, not just Christians, 
unbelievers who don't believe it need to believe it. Those that are, the reason he's saying he came to save sinners is because first of all, we know, don't we? Every human being is a sinner, right? No exceptions. Jesus is the only one who ever lived as a human being who never sinned. So you might say, well, then why is he saying he came to save sinners? Because there's two categories of sinners. The ones that know they're sinners and need a savior and the ones that think they're okay. They're not sinners. I'm, I'm not that bad kind of people. I think my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds and I'll be okay when I die and God judges my life. You couldn't be more wrong, right? Everybody needs a savior. You can't save yourself. You can't stop sinning. So um, the point is, Paul just gave that whole resume of what a bad dude he was to let us know there's no one that's beyond the reach of the gospel. Who's, no one is so bad an axe murderer, a rapist, anybody can repent and come to Christ for salvation. So, but Paul knows he calls himself the worst of sinners because he persecuted uh, the church of God. Look at verse 16. But for that reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. So the, the point is from the greater to the lesser, meaning this, if a guy like Paul could receive mercy and patience from Christ, then anybody is eligible for salvation. The door is open for those who come humbly to Christ and bow and to him and his lordship. He's not the only one. Um, He's an example of the patience of God being shown to an extreme. It's amazing that God didn't snuff him out considering what he was doing, but God had plans for him. Um, so he wants to underscore the point in verse 16 that we're saved by grace. He had mercy, withholding of punishment, um, so that Christ Jesus might display in his immense patience, the end of verse 16, uh, dis display his immense patience as an example those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Immense patience. Some of you came to Christ at an early age, which is awesome. Some of you came a little bit later. Some of you a lot later, right? Are you aware of how much patience God had with you? In all those years of, I call it wasted time, where I was accomplishing things, but nothing for God or for the kingdom of God, how patient he was to wait uh, and slowly, gradually lead us to faith. Pretty amazing thing. Um, notice that those who believe in him, the end of verse 16, receive eternal life. What an amazing gift. Now, verse 17 is a little doxology. There are several of these in the Bible. They're just little places where the writer can't resist just praising God. It just comes out of him. And that's what 17 is. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's like a little parenthesis. He, he was sort of talking about one thing and he just can't resist it. Let's take that apart. First of all, the king eternal. Who's the king that's eternal? Well, on the earth, kingdoms come and kingdoms go, don't they? And so do kings, presidents, premiers, whatever they are, dictators, 
They all come and go. When we studied the book of Daniel, that was so clear that there's so many kingdoms that just rise up and seem like, boy, there nobody can defeat the Romans and then the Roman empire falls or the Persian empire or the Greek empire, the Babylonian empire, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. God is the eternal king, God, the father, but Jesus Christ is called the king of kings and Lord of lords. If he's not God, that's blasphemy. But we know, of course, that he is, right? That's why he can be that eternal, immortal king, a kingdom that never ends. Is he fully reigning on earth now? No. Will he when he returns in the second coming? Yes. Can't wait, personally. Um, to the king eternal. Not only is that eternally, we think, oh, you mean forever in the future? Yes, but really it's eternal the other way in the past. Forever, he's always been the king. He's the one that made the universe. He owns everything. He is our king. If there's a king, there's a kingdom. And if there's a kingdom, there's subjects in the kingdom, meaning the lower people, that's us. I'm thankful I'm in his kingdom. Remember, central phrase in the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. It's really an invitation. May your kingdom come to my life, to the world by the second coming. But may your kingdom come to my life in such a way that I'm obeying as a good subject of the king. And then the second phrase, your will, thy will be done. Not even my will, thy will be done. So back to 17, the king eternal, immortal unable to die, right? God cannot die. We're going to talk about this later. It's a paradox because God had to die and God can't die. We'll come back to that. Just trying to confuse you as much as possible, nice and early. Immortal. God has always existed and will always exist. If you think you understand that, you're wrong. Humans think in terms of when did it start? When will it end? right? Space goes on forever. Do you ever think about that? I used to think as a kid, well, yeah. And then way out there, there must be like a wall and that's it. And my brother pointed out what's on the other side of the wall. And I'm like getting a headache going, oh man, space goes on forever. Time, God, God's life, but your life, the same eternal word is used for your life and mine. You have now eternal life. It's a pretty amazing thing. Okay, the king, he's eternal. He's immortal. He is invisible. You say, why is that in there? Because God is spirit. He doesn't have flesh and bones, even though there's false teachers that say he does, believe it or not. Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, for example, say God is six foot two to six foot three. Honest, you can look it up. God's invisible. He is spirit. If God makes an appearance to someone, it's called a, a theophany. Theo is the prefix for God, a, a vision of God. It's not God in his totality. If you want to see God in his totality, be aware of this. The Old Testament says no man can see God and live. It's such a mind-blowing experience for a sinful human being. It's a good thing he doesn't show up, right? It would kill us all instantly. He's so pure, we're so not pure. Is that a word? It is now. God is eternal. He's a king. He's immortal. And he's invisible. 
but he became visible. He became flesh in Jesus Christ, where we could see how God reacts to people, what God is like. You want to know more about God? Study the life of Jesus Christ. Immortal, invisible, eternal king. Note the next phrase, the only God. Most of the world religions at this time were poly, meaning many, theistic, meaning gods. They had a god of, of wine, a god of fertility, a god of childbirth, a god of, you know, eating, a god of houses, a god of sex, a god of everything. There's only one god. In Israel, uh, in Deuteronomy, there's the Hebrew Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Monotheism, one God. You say, wait, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, isn't that three? One what? One God revealed in three who's. One what? Three who's. Three persons are the one God. Do I fully understand this? No. Do you? Probably not. The best analogy I've ever heard, I've given you this before, and it's not perfect. There's no, how could you make an analogy about God? But I like to use H2O as an analogy. How many of you know what I'm going to say? Yes, yeah, some of you do. If you put a big pot on the stove and heat it up and fill it with water, what chemically is in the pot? H2O, right? One thing. Is it a liquid, a solid, or a gas? It's a liquid. But as it gets to the boiling point, steam starts to rise off the water, which is a gas, not a liquid. Now you have two things in the pot, a gas and a liquid, but they're both H2O, one thing. At a specific time when it's really bubbling and the steam's really coming up, you throw in a big block of ice. And for a short time, you have a solid, a liquid, and a gas, and they're all H2O. Does that explain it all? Not really, but this is the best I could come up with. Uh, let's keep rolling. Tell us more, Paul. He's a king. He's eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. He's spirit. By the way, the Bible says they that worship him must worship him in, in spirit and in truth. What does that mean? It's easy to explain it in this way. That's John 4, by the way. The opposite makes it more understandable. What's the exact, exact opposite of worshiping in spirit and in truth? Worshiping in the flesh and in error, right? In the flesh, meaning I'm worshiping and screaming and yelling because I want people to notice me. That's not worshiping in the spirit. You're not worshiping for God's benefit. You're worshiping so people will notice you. That's just one example. What's worshiping in error? Worshiping... God as bowing down to an idol or something. Anything that you say about God that's not true is blasphemy. That would be worshiping an error. Okay. Immortal, invisible, the only God. To the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God. Be honor and glory forever and ever. He's just praising God, isn't he? Um, it's wonderful. Notice that it's exclusive. He doesn't say to the eternal God, be honor and glory forever along with me. It's just his glory, his honor. Anything we do for the kingdom that we're complimented on, we need to give the glory back to him and say, you know what? The only reason I'm able to do what I'm able to do is 
God gives me the gift to be able to do it or the opportunity or the time, whatever it may be. Honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, which means so be it. Okay, so now Paul shakes his head and goes, okay, I got to get back to the letter. Now, he couldn't resist that little praise. Verse 18, Timothy, my son. By the way, not a biological son. He is his son in the faith. He led him to the Lord along with his mother. Um, and uh, he is much younger. So he's his son in the faith. He calls him that earlier. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that you, so that by recalling them, sorry, you may fight the battle well. First thing to notice is it's not a suggestion. It's a command. Remember I told you he's writing this letter to tell him, stay in there. Don't leave. I'm giving you this command. Okay, next thing. And Paul being an apostle can give the command. Okay, the next thing is in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. Okay, truth is somebody made prophecies about Timothy. Well, what were they? We don't know. Who made them? When was it? We don't know that either. Doesn't tell us in the Bible. But somebody, maybe when they when he prayed to receive Christ or when they laid hands on him to be a minister with Paul in, you know, going around to all the missionary uh, locations they went to, somebody prophesied over Timothy and may have been predictive saying, you're going to have a great ministry. You're going to end up being a minister for Christ. You're going to lead a church or something. You're going to do great things in the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever it was, we don't know what it was, but it clearly had something to say like that, because he's saying, in keeping with those prophecies, plural, that were once made about you, that's why he's giving them the command to stay, that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. How many know that although there's so many positive things about being a Christian, having a, a, a whole new family, having the Holy Spirit live inside of you, having the word of God, having the assurance that you have eternal life, that you can die at any moment, and there's no sting to it. However, how many of you know that we are behind enemy lines and we're in the midst of a battle, right? Most of the world is not Christian. Most of the world doesn't like Christianity. Certainly the government, popular media, make fun of it, don't like it, um, greatly limit it. In schools, in some places in this country, you can teach children about being gender fluid and transgender and homosexual. But if you, if a teacher says, let's talk about Jesus Christ, open your Bible students and turn to John 4, that student, would, yeah, right. They would yank that teacher out of there so fast it wouldn't be funny. Jesus has become a four-letter word in schools. What a ridiculous thing that is. America was founded on Judeo-Christian values. In as recently as the early 1900s, American schools, the kids practiced handwriting, listen, by copying huge portions of the, wait for it, Bible. Hello? <laughs> Just so amazing to me. Uh, in any case, so we're in a battle. It doesn't mean we need to be offensive and hurt people and go kill people, but be aware, <laughs> but be aware that we're in a battle. The world, the flesh, the devil. 
That are, those are the three enemies of the Christian faith and of Christians. So we have to be armed and dressed for battle. Ephesians 6, six the full armor of God from the helmet to the breastplate, the belt, the shoes, the sword, the whole bit. I won't go through that now with you, but we're in a battle. He's saying, fight the battle well. Well, how does he do that? Verse 19, holding on to, grasping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected. He's talking about the false teachers and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to their faith. Okay. So holding on to the faith, let me ask you this question. Now you don't have to answer out loud, but think of the answer. When was the last time you ate something? I'll bet nobody here would say I ate in, in 1999 was the, you'd be dead, right? I'll bet nobody would hear say, I ate back in January. That was the last time. You'd be really, really hungry, if not dead, right? What's your point, Joe? Just this. Part of holding on to the faith is constantly being fed by it, constantly reading the Bible. And I don't mean haphazard. You ever see these people that just go like this, flip a page and go, let's see what this verse says. How his fury has ended. I'm in Isaiah 14. That's not the way to read the Bible. Pick a book in the Bible, start at the beginning, read through it slowly, study it as you're doing here tonight. But this is not one meal a week. You also go to church. You hopefully read the Bible at home, pray at home, holding on to the faith. Why? Because there's so much distraction coming at you from television and the internet and popular music and movies and that are against the gospel. It's very important that we hold on to the faith and a good conscience. Faith is what we believe. Whether we act it out and live it out determines whether we have a good conscience or not. What's a good conscience? Doesn't everybody have a conscience? Yes. Romans 2, one of the three lights God gives. Light number one in Romans 1, see for the light of creation. Everybody has that light. Go out and look at the sky, the weather, the leaves on the trees, babies, you know, chickens, whatever. It's an amazing universe we live in, right? There's no way it could have happened on its own. The light of sea creation ought to make people look toward, there must be a creator. Second light, Romans 2, the light of conscience. God built into you a computer program that basically is his knowledge of what is right and wrong. And when you do something and you know it's wrong and you do it anyway, you are disobeying that voice that said, don't do it, right? Eventually, if you do that enough, the don't do it becomes, don't do it. And eventually becomes where it's, you, you can sear your conscience, burn it to the point where you don't hear it anymore. To keep a good conscience, we have to be obeying the conscience God has given us. But we have a louder conscience, don't we? It's called the Holy Spirit who in a much more convincing way tells us, don't do that. Or the opposite. Yes, you need to help him. No, I'm really busy. Help him. And you know, don't you? So do I. So holding on to the faith, keeping a good conscience. Some, he's implying the false teachers have rejected both of those things. They didn't hold on to the faith. They didn't know what they believed and why they believed it. That's why they veered off 
to some myths and legends and saying you have to keep the whole Jewish law and they're off base. In the same way, they are also not living their conscience. They are sinning. That's what's implied here that the false teachers, um, that's what they're doing. The conscience and, if you will, your behavior, your keeping a good conscience and your faith are like twin rudders on a boat. You ever see a giant ship and how small the rudder is by comparison? You turn that rudder, the whole ship goes a whole different way. He's giving an analogy here that they've rejected those things. What things? Holding on to the faith and a good conscience. And what happened? They suffered. We're back to the ship again. Shipwreck, right? Steered right into a ravine or something. With regard to the faith, meaning the gospel, the true Christian gospel. Now, he does an amazing thing in verse 20. Not politically correct. He names names. Do you see it? Among them, there's others, but Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. You say, what? What is that? By the way, Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy 2, Alexander's in 2 Timothy 4. These are two of the false teachers, okay? He's naming them. If that seems impolite to you, you're wrong. I'll tell you why. If you were alive in the 1980s, there's at least one person here that wasn't, maybe more. In the 1980s, do you remember the Tylenol scare where somebody had gotten into a factory and put bad stuff, I don't remember whether it was poison or what, in Tylenol? Remember? Now, aren't you glad that they named the name Tylenol in the news? Be careful taking Tylenol. There's some poison stuff in there. What if they just said there's some pain reliever that will remain nameless? Now you'd be looking at the Bayer aspirin and the, uh, the Advil and the Aleve going, well, which one is it? It, was, it made sense, didn't it, to name names, to warn people. In the same way, Paul calls out these two dudes. He, he names other people in other books. Um, I, most people think Alexander is the same guy as Alexander the coppersmith who did him much harm, he mentions in another book. So he mentions these two false teachers so that they'll all be warned. Remember, these letters would be written, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, would be read and copied and read out loud to multiple churches, people traveling. With, I'm going to Corinth next week. Oh, cop, copy First Timothy and take it with you. And they would take the letter with them and read it there. And then they would trade. Oh, we have Galatians and Colossians and the Gospel of Mark. Oh, let me copy those. He's warning them about false teachers. Why? Because they're like poison Tylenol. They'll get you off track. He handed them over to Satan. Oh, isn't that a little harsh? What does that mean? In 1 Corinthians 5, the same phrase is used. Okay? I'm going to boil it down and make it real simple. I kicked him out of the church. Excommunicated him. Obviously, Matthew 18 has a, a formula for what you're supposed to do. You're not supposed to just walk up to Chris and go, you, you're out. There's a whole... Um, correct procedure. You go to the person and say, look, we feel that you're sinning. Um, are you doing these things? Well, yes. Okay. Well, uh, we, we're pleading with you to repent because you're in our church and we can't put up with this. It's not 
oops, I slipped once and sinned. This is ongoing sin. Or let's say Chris was teaching another Bible study where he's teaching way out there crazy doctrine. So the church would say, you have to stop doing that. He refuses. You go back with a few other people. You go back with some elders. He still refuses. You tell it to the church. If he still doesn't repent, uh, Matthew 18 says, the best thing to do is kick him out of the church. Hand him over to Satan. Now listen, if that sounds unloving, the point, and he really spells it out in 1 Corinthians 5, is the goal is repentance. Because being in a church with other believers, where there's prayer, where there's fellowship, where's the teaching of the word, you are, in, to some extent, under God's umbrella of protection. I'm not saying nothing can happen that's bad to any of us. We can have bad things happen. But thrown out into the world, excommunicated, you're no longer having the fellowship with the believers you used to be around. You're sort of outside the umbrella where Satan can do even worse damage to you. The goal is for the person to realize, I missed the fellowship, I missed the teaching, I've made an error. They were right when they talked to me, and they come back in repentance. That's the goal. That's what he means by handing them over to um, Satan, into the world, into the devil's domain, no protection. Um, he doesn't mean inflicting evil on them. Um, he's sort of handing them over to Satan, which Satan might be used by God to discipline this person. Keep your finger here and Turn back to 1 Corinthians 5. Let's look at that real fast. So I don't know, is that five books back? I'm just guessing. I'd say six or seven. But anyway, 1 Corinthians 5, um, there's some sexual immorality going on in that church that they're not dealing with. They're just letting it go on. And there's a, uh, a guy there who is sleeping with and living with his father's wife. Okay, the church ought to be appalled at this. They're looking the other way. So Paul, that's what the chapter, the beginning of the chapters are right about. Middle of verse three, Paul says, I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled, verse four, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan, so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved. Notice on the day of the Lord. The goal is repentance, not just kick them out the door. I'm sure if we did that to somebody, we would be praying for them, um, that they would find the truth and come back if they're willing to listen. Um, go back to First uh, Timothy now with me, if you will. Um, so Hymenaeus and Alexander have been handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. What's blasphemy? Saying anything about God that's not true. Calling something God that is, isn't God, or calling something that is God, not God. To say Jesus is just a great teacher, he wasn't God, that's blasphemy. It's not true, right? Uh, very serious sin. So that's the story of Hymenaeus and Alexander. In this Bible study, I've gotten emails from a few people because I mention names that I think you guys ought to avoid, right? Somebody's giving me the thumbs up back there. Um, there are so many false teachers. I didn't bring it, but it was in last week's notes. Do you remember how we started the Bible study last week? I said that in churches in America and around the world, the following doctrines are being taught. Do you remember? 
and it should have made your hair curl. You can become a god. You can rule on your own planet. You can have whatever you want if you just believe it and name it and claim it. And Jesus didn't pay for our sins on the cross. He had to go to hell where he was tortured for three days by Satan. And then after that, that's when he paid for our sins on the cross. I could go on and on. If that stuff doesn't make you sick, it should. By the way, since we picked that doctrine, Jesus paid for our sins, not on the cross, but in hell. Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer. There's many others, but those two have taught that. Well, do they still teach it? I don't know, but have they ever corrected it? No. Um, I'm not making this stuff up. I've heard the quotes. I've heard audio of them saying this stuff. Um, they're actually ridiculing people that say Jesus paid for the, our sins on the cross. Had to go to hell and be tortured. And that's from the book of illusions, I think, chapter two. But anyway, um, it's legit to name names. Last thing about that. I'm not the judge. You're not the judge. The judge is we've been told what it is. It's the word of God. If somebody's teaching something in a Christian church and it doesn't line up with this, it's our responsibility to point it out and say, that's not right. We need to correct that right now and not allow it in a church. Remember, Timothy is sort of the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and there's false teaching going on. So all the more reason that to name names, if you will. Um, he calls it a battle in verse 17. He can't surrender. He, remember, he reminds him what a great God he's serving, how patient he's been with Timothy and with Paul. And he's saying uh, the false teaching has to be stopped, turned over to Satan. All right, let's keep rolling. Are you still awake? Say amen. amen. Cool, still pretty awake. Um, chapter two. Uh, let's see. Now we're going to get into church duties, government uh, of the church, how a church ought to be run. You may know that there are churches that are not run this way, okay? A lot of the denominations, Christian denominations, people divided over silly things, okay? Um, there's all different types of church government in the world. God has laid it out right here for us, and Titus uh, chapter one as well. But anyway, so that's what he's going to tell them about. He's going to say uh, who should be a pastor and how they're to pastor, who should be a deacon or deaconess and how they should do that. Um, the false teachers, keep in mind, were very Jewish. They were all about keeping the law, as we said. I want you to notice that's a very small club, if you will. How often in this chapter, he, he says in one way or another, the gospel is for all, for everyone. Watch for it. Um, okay. So, uh, and, the, and we're going to talk about prayer at the very outset of chapter two. Okay, let's dive in. Chapter two. I urge you then, first of all, talking to Timothy, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. There's the word all. Now, those four words are all synonyms for or close cousins of the word prayer, all different types of prayer. Let's, let's take them apart one at a time. So I'm ur he's urging him that the church be a place of prayer. 
It ought to be a place of fellowship, of the proclamation or teaching of the word, and a place of prayer. Does that mean you can't pray at home? No, of course, you can pray without ceasing at all times. We can certainly pray at home, or I can go to the Harkin Riders' house and pray with them, but we pray as a church body. It's very powerful to have that many people praying the same thing in agreement. So let's take these little prayers apart. First of all, there's the word uh, petitions or supplications some translations have. This is very simply, um, uh, this is all public prayer, by the way. Um, this is simply asking God for something. Supplication. I really need a job, Lord. I, I am asking you to heal me. It can be for yourself. It can be for someone else. So-and-so is really hurting. I pray you take their pain and make your presence known to them. Supplication, just asking for stuff. For others, for yourself. Okay, next thing, prayers. It's just a general word, and it's communication with God. That's all it is. I've met people that have said, you know, I believe, but I, I just don't know how to pray. And I say, well, do you know how to talk? And they say, yeah, obviously I'm talking to you. I said, I say, then just talk to God. It doesn't have to be all formal in a British accent. Oh Lord, we reach forward to you now. And it can just be God. I am hurting so bad. That's a prayer, right? Sometimes you just, you don't even know what to say. That's a prayer, right? But you're thinking of God and you're reaching out to him. Prayer is communication with God. Is it true that Jesus gave the model prayer, our father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name? Yes, that's true. However, there's a lot of people that pray that prayer repetitiously where they're our father, art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They can come if you're a Catholic, you can do the, I could do the Lord's prayer in under 10 seconds. Easy. You just get it down, right? Prayer is communication with God. Oh, you're saying don't pray the Lord's prayer. No, no. Pray the Lord's prayer, but do it like this. Our father, stop. Just think about what you're, you're talking to the God of the universe and you're calling him dad. That's incredible. Thank you that you're a father. What does that imply? That I'm your child, that I ought to obey you, that you are an awesome dad who's provided for me. Uh, what I'm saying is, if you're going to say the Lord's Prayer, say it slowly. Which art in heaven. Stop right there. You're not in this little dimension here. We're in these bodies. and You're in heaven, the vastness of eternity and all of space and time. Glory to you. Say the Lord's Prayer slowly. But... Prayer, as we've said before, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, A-C-T-S, acts. Remember, I won't go over that again because you guys will roll your eyes at me. Um, very, very important that public prayers are made. Do you ever pray without speaking? Just in your mind, think, I do it all the time. I'm talking with someone and I don't want to go, hold on, Lord, what should I say to this person? I just say it in my head. What should I say to this person? please open a door for me to witness to them. You know what I mean? Pray without ceasing. Pray about everything. Oh, I don't want to bother God. He's very busy. He's your dad. He cares, right? Okay. Supplication, asking for something. By the way, all prayer should not be gimme, 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 right? Asking for something. Prayers, general communication with God. Intercessions. These are specific prayers. You're interceding 
stepping in between a person and their situation or a person and God praying specifically for Russell or Ken or Charlotte, praying for um, on behalf of others. Um, certainly Thanksgiving, huge part of prayer. What are we thanking for? If you can't think of a hundred things, you ain't thinking very well. There's so much to thank God for. Um, very important that we thank God. I think that we rush into his presence and we pray, pray, pray for things and answers to prayers come. I think the thanksgiving for the answers are more important than the requests themselves because it brings glory to God. When you're thanking God, you are, all your thoughts are in good, first of all, right? And they're all channeled upward to him for his glory. It takes the, the focus off yourself. It's impossible to be conceited and thank God. Because thanking God is admitting, you did this, not me. You gave me this gift. I didn't earn it or deserve it. It's all God's glory. So prayers, petitions, intercession, thanksgiving, be made for just certain people. Is that what it says? All people. Okay. All people. You mean other Christians? Yes. You mean non-Christians? Yes, it has to mean that. And so what's underlying these verses is what I'm going to call evangelistic prayer. Because if you're praying for all people, don't you know a bunch of unsaved people that don't know Jesus, that are in big trouble in their lives? Pray for them. Pray that God would open their hearts, be drawing them to his son, Jesus. Prayers for all people. Doesn't mean every single human being where you have to go through the phone book and then go to another city and go through the phone book. You know what it means? Pray for all the people, listen, in your world. What do you mean? The people God put in your path this week, this month, this year, right? Or into your mind that you haven't thought of him for 10 years. I'm just going to start praying for him. Maybe you, you're telling me to pray for him, God. Pray for all people. This is public prayer. There's certainly private prayer as well. Um, um, okay, well, I'll talk about that later. Let's move on. And now it gets really weird. Verse two. For all people. Yeah, we're good with. For kings, for presidents, for Congress. Oh, you don't like that, do you? Well, I don't like Trump. Well, I don't like Biden. I don't like Obama. I don't like Bush. You know what? You're supposed to pray for your leader, whoever it is. Let me give you a little background. You know who the emperor is that he's talking about here? It's Nero, who was the most evil dude ever to become a Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire. Nero would throw parties, and to light his garden, he would bring in Christians, have Christians alive, have them coated in tar, stuck up on a pole and lit on fire human torches to light let's party on just an unbelievably evil dude and here's paul saying prayer for all people for kings and all those in authority if they're christian now if you agree with them now pray for everybody in authority they need it. You want to know where some dark places are spiritually? Washington, D.C., Sacramento, California, Buffalo, New York, the capitals where seats of power. I'll tell you another one, Hollywood. 
Good Lord, the demons are hanging off the buildings. Okay, don't get me started. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. In that verse is, tucked in there is Romans 13, which says, submit to the authorities. Christians should not be known as the guys that are always rioting and breaking stuff, and, and we're not, are we? right? There was a riot in downtown Baltimore last week. I'll tell you right now, it wasn't Christians, right? I don't know who it was, but it wasn't. Christians ought not do that. Um, There's one exception. We'll get to that in a second. When we rebel, if you will, but it's peacefully, not violently. For kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful, quiet lives. Listen, the gospel spreads more when we live peaceful, quiet lives than if we're known as the rebels, the ones that are always breaking the laws and making trouble. Um, What's the exception to obeying the leaders? It's Acts 5. They arrest Peter and a bunch of other apostles and say, stop preaching this Jesus dude. And Peter says, sorry, we must obey God rather than men. So if they ever make it illegal to own a Bible or go to church or go to Bible study or watch the guy with the mustache on Zoom, you need to rebel then, right? I would. I'm not turning in my Bible if they ever say that. Otherwise, we need to be obedient and not troublemakers. In the Roman Empire, the Christians never rebelled. And within a few hundred years, do you know what happened? Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Pretty amazing. Now, they took some left turns. I'll agree. Um, We can talk about that another time. So pray for those in authority. All those different types of prayer. At home, in church, lead quiet, peaceful lives in all godliness and holiness, obedience, God-likeness. How do we know what that is from the word? You know what? I just looked at the clock on the wall. It's time to take our two-minute break and stretch our aging bodies. I'm going to turn my screen off. I'll be back in two minutes. Don't go away. All right. Find your seats back there, if you will. Now it's been two minutes. Um, and those of you that are, <laughs> that are here, find your seats. Okay. We're back in 1 Timothy 2. Prayer for kings, for those in authority, even evil ones. Pray for their salvation. Pray evangelically. Um, Pray for their protection. God has instituted in humanity human government as a means of order, because God's a God of order, not chaos. That's kind of obvious, isn't it? We are to live lives that obey the laws, peaceful and quiet, in all godliness and holiness. Verse 3, this is good and pleases God our savior. That's an Old Testament phrase, God, our savior. Is it in the New Testament? Yes, here and a few other places. I thought Jesus was our savior. He is, and he's God, right? We already talked about that. Um, But Jesus took an additional nature, human nature, uh, as well as being divine, being God. God, our Savior, is God the Father is our Savior as well, because he's the one that instituted and planned the whole cross, the coming of Jesus to the earth, and the second coming. So this is good and pleases God our Savior. 
that ought to make you want to do it more. Something that pleases God is something that we ought to aim to do. Why is that? Because you want to please the one you love, don't you? I do. So if it pleases God, our Savior, to pray for kings and pray for all people and um, live quiet, godly lives, then we ought to do it. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who, verse 4, wants all people, or all men, to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, this is a little bit of a difficult verse, but not that much. There are verses in the Bible that say that everything that God desires to have happen, happens. I'm going to give you a few in a second. Um, God doesn't, um, how do I want to put this? Well, I'll say it this way. There are people that believe that um, God just puts out the offer of salvation. And whoever wants to can decide, yeah, I'm in and come to him. Okay. And God only can do part of the work of salvation and put the offer out there. The rest is up to you and me. And we were more spiritual. So we decided to come to him. I believe that what I just said is not biblical, believe it or not, because the Bible says, John 6, I don't want to go on a big, long tangent, but Bible says that God chose us in him. No, no, I chose God. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says God chose us. Well, yeah, he chose us as soon as we believe. No, you know what Ephesians 1 says? He chose us in Christ, listen, before the foundation of the world. But wait, I didn't even exist then. Exactly. He already knew you. Those he foreknew, he chose. Do I understand why he chose me? No. I can tell you why he, the reason, these aren't the reasons. It wasn't because Joe is such a good guy. Joe is so spiritual. Joe is such a holy dude. If you knew me before, if you knew me well now, you'd say, that ain't it. The Bible says God chooses certain people. Go to John 6 real fast. Uh, I don't want to sell this too hard because this is not a salvation doctrine. If you don't believe everything I'm saying right now, that's fine. You got to um, read the word for yourself and see if I'm making it say something. It doesn't. Um, John 6. There are certain people, listen, that the Father gives to Jesus. Look at John 6, verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. There's certain ones God chose and gave to Jesus. Look at verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, Jesus talking about the Father, that I will lose none of those that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. I'm, like I've told you, I don't fully understand it, but here we are. Jesus says in John 15 to the disciples who think, you know, Peter, James, John, they think, 
well, we watched Jesus and we made the decision. Yep. He's, we're going to follow him. You know what Jesus says? You did not choose me. I chose you. <clears throat> now, there was a point in my life where I turned from my sin and came to Christ. But the Bible says, same chapter, John 6, look at verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So I believe when I turned and came to Christ, that for months, maybe years before that, the Holy Spirit was doing this to me, and I was doing this to the Holy Spirit. But eventually, I came. Now go back and read verse 4 which says that God wants all people to be saved. Does that contradict it? The context is all sorts of people, all kinds of people, not just Jews, not just nice people. God wants axe murderers and prisoners and soldiers and dieticians and everybody, all different types, even kings, even Nero. Okay. God wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Okay. So somebody here, I'm sure is going, boy, I, I don't know if I get this. The Bible pr always presents two perspectives. Listen, God's and ours. Watch salvation. God's perspective, chosen before the foundation of the world, God's perspective. Man's perspective, whosoever will may come. Do you know why that's in there? Because there are people that are such bad sinners, they'll think, not me. Wait a minute, it does say whosoever, right? Um, the word all in the Bible doesn't always mean all. You say, oh, now you're really splitting hairs here. You sound like Bill Clinton. Remember Bill Clinton? Uh, it depends on your definition of the word is. Remember that? All in Mark 11, it says all, every, all regarded John the Baptist as a prophet. Does that mean every single human being? No. It means all kinds of people, a lot of people. In um, Luke 3.15, all wondered whether John was the Messiah. All, every single human being. No, just means that was the popular sentiment. All kinds of people thought that. Um, Mark 1.37 says, all were searching for Christ. All, every human being? No. So I don't believe this verse teaches that every single person that God in a general sense may desire that, but he see, saves only some. Last analogy, and I'll move on, I promise, from the whole predestination, God chose you thing. By the way, it should be a cause for great rejoicing, because if you didn't come on your own and neither did I, then what is there to brag about? I was so spiritual, I'm the one that saw, saw that Jesus was the Lord, and that's, no, you didn't. Ephesians 2 verse 1 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Dead people don't go looking for Messiahs. Last thing, 
Here's my analogy. Most of you have heard it before. You're walking in a big grassy field just for miles, rolling hills. You come over a hill and you look into a valley and there is a single file line of human, being that's, human beings that stretches for 25 miles. You can't believe it. So you make your way down there and you get to the last person in line and you go, excuse me. And the guy says, yeah. And you say, what is this line? And he says, oh, this is a line for people that have sinned, broken God's law, and, and we deserve punishment from God. Get in line. And yet you first you think, no. And then you think, oh, yeah. Right? This is, we're all unsaved. Okay. So you get in the line and you're thinking, oh, man, should have lived a different life. All of a sudden, you look way down the line, and here comes a guy wearing a white robe and sandals. And it's Jesus. And he's pulling certain people out of the line. Saving them. They don't have to have the punishment anymore. And you think, oh, man, that's incredible. And he comes, gets near you, and you're like, oh, my gosh. And he taps you on the shoulder and says, come follow me. I'm choosing you right now. Now I know what you're thinking. Well, that's awesome. That is so cool. That is wonderful. That's God's grace. He died on the cross and he chose you. And now you're going to believe and you'll be saved. But wait a minute. What about all the other people in line? Why didn't he choose everybody? Universalism. Everybody gets saved. Doesn't matter. Not biblical. I don't know the answer to why not. But I'll tell you this, let me give you th three levels, may I? Fair, see this level right here? That's fair. I hired Tom to paint my garage and I told him $2,000 and he did it and I paid him the 2,000. More than fair? No. Less than fair? No, fair. I hired Tom, I told him 2,000, he painted the garage, I paid him $80. Less than fair. I hired Tom to paint the garage. He painted the garage, $2,000. I paid him $2,500. More than fair, right? Now I'll go back to the line. What's fair for all those sinners in line? Judgment. Hell. Okay. So the ones that stay in line, do they get more than fair? No. Do they get less than fair? No. They get fair. So God's fair, maintains his fairness, justice. But what about the ones he pulls out of the line? Less than fair? No. Fair? No. More than fair. So God is either more than fair or fair to choose certain people. I don't understand it. It's read Romans 8 and Romans 9. It's all through there. The church is called, the Christians are called the elect. You know what that means? The chosen ones. There's a popular TV, two series, right? Two seasons called The Chosen about the life of Christ. Meaning who? Jesus was the chosen one to be the Messiah. True. You're the chosen ones to believe. Anyway, now that I've alienated just about everyone, um, let's, but pray for people all people. What's your point, Joe? This is the point. Listen, I don't know if I walk into Rayleigh's, hmm, 
there's 30 people. Which ones are chosen? Those are the ones I want to pray for. Do they have a little cross on their forehead or no? So you know what? Pray for all of them. Witness to all of them. Cast the seeds out there. Let him harvest. Because I don't know. I've known some people that have gotten saved that I thought that guy will never come to Jesus. Ever. There they are. If you knew the Apostle Paul, you'd go, don't even waste your time. He kills Christians. Chosen. Shall we move on? Um, so pray for all kinds of people because you don't know who's chosen. You don't know who's going to get saved. You never know. It might surprise you. Um, at, the, at the risk of embarrassing you, Russell, uh, you lived a life like me, maybe a little worse than mine, and mine's pretty bad. And here you are, right? Unbelievable. Praise God. Um, okay. Uh, so, um, yeah, there are, I won't go into it. I've got all kinds of notes about the fact that God says whatever he wants to have happen, he can make happen, right? He's sovereign. Um, okay. Verse five and six kind of go together. But let's stay in four for one more second. Who wants all people to be, all men to be saved, to come to, listen, a knowledge of the truth. A knowledge. You got to have a basic knowledge of who and what Jesus was and what he did in order to be saved. You can't just say, I'm just going to say Jesus and be saved. Well, who is he? I don't know, but I believe in you, whoever you are. You have to have at least a basic knowledge, right? Of Jesus Christ, who he was, what he did. And what he commands. Now, once you get saved, you want to get into this book more and more to learn more and more. What pleases my God, my Lord, my Savior, Jesus Christ, who reveals the Father. Okay, let's keep rolling. A knowledge of the truth. Verse 5. 4. Uh, this is an amazing verse. There's one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Okay, we got to take verse five apart, and then we'll get into verse six, one thing at a time. This is a common creedal statement that the way it's worded, you can tell it was recited often. There's one God that's first, and that's very Jewish. The Hebrew Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There are three world religions, and only three that are monotheistic, one God. Judaism, Christianity, and believe it or not, Islam, who has a different God, Allah, but they are monotheistic, okay? Christianity, Judaism, and uh, Islam. All the other religions have multiple gods, polytheism, or pantheism, the idea that everything is God, the chair's God, the rock's God, poison oak is God, the clouds are God, the ocean's God, maybe not poison oak. My, my grandson, Luke, when he was about three, um, he was with his family somewhere, and his, I think his mother, my daughter, got bit by a mosquito, and it hurt, and it was itchy, and Luke watched the whole thing, and at, at like three years old said, Mom, mosquitoes go to hell, right? <laughs> Which the answer is clearly yes, right? Okay. <laughs> along with spiders, poison oak, they're all in hell. Okay, sorry, let's move on. Um, uh, let's see, where were we? Um, one God, 
and one mediator between God and mankind, mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Catholics believe that the Virgin Mary is the mediator between God and men. This verse alone ought to convince them wrong. One mediator. It's not Moses who the Jews looked to as a mediator. Well, he got the law from God up on the mountain. He's kind of a mediator. But Moses could only give the law. He couldn't save anyone. Neither can the law save anyone. Why Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ? Okay, here it is. The, the whole Old Testament again and again says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission or payment for sin. That's why they had sacrifices, which were a covering for sin. Okay, so we need a blemishless, perfect human being without sin who can die for mankind. No problem. Oh, wait, who can it be? Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Abraham, go through the Old Testament. They're all sinners. No one qualifies. Okay, what if God came down and died for the sins of mankind? Impossible. Why is that? God's not a man. He can't die. God can't bleed. He's spirit. Unless the Son of God would be willing to lower himself greatly from the glory he lived in forever in the past with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father and become a man, take on an additional nature so he could die and bleed and suffer, so he could live the perfect sinless life on the earth, it only can be Jesus Christ. In Isaiah, talking about Christ, it says, his going forth, goings forth are from eternity in the past. It says he shall be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. God, folks, in a man's body. You want to know what God's like? Read about Jesus. Unbelievably patient with those disciples, with you, with me. So Jesus comes and lives the perfect life you and I were supposed to live, and then dies the horrible death you and I deserve in our place. He dies for us. Then he rises from the dead and ascends to the Father. And all who believe in him have eternal life. What an unbelievable thing. It had to be Jesus. Chuck Smith, uh, Chuck Missler used to tell the story about a friend of his, Christian guy who had a dream. This isn't scripture, but I love the story. And he had a dream that, this is a pretty weird dream, that, um, that, God in heaven said to the son, I need you to go to earth, and to this planet, and save these people. And the son said, okay. And then the father said, well, I should tell you, it's a planet full of um, Doberman pinchers and um, pit bulls, and they're vicious. And the son said, that's okay, I'll go. And the father said, oh, and you're going to be a toy chihuahua. And they're going to rip you apart. And he said, but father, I, I love him. I'll do it. And he did. So that God doesn't have to punish you because Jesus Christ 
took our punishment. Amazing thing. One mediator, one go-between Jesus Christ. That's why we pray to the Father in the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus Christ, right? In his power, because he's our one mediator, Jesus Christ. No one else could do it. You're not the mediator. Some people say, I don't need Jesus. I'll take my chances with God on my own. I'm being my own savior, my own mediator. Don't do it. He's a better mediator, right? He is in heaven right now. Jesus Christ is, listen, praying for, interceding for, guess who? You. That's astounding to me. Amazing. One mediator between God and mankind, mankind, the man, showing that he was human, Christ, which means Messiah, Jesus, the man's name, who gave himself as a ransom. What's a ransom? It's a payment you, made to, you make to free somebody who's been kidnapped or enslaved or has been bought. Jesus pays your price. Therefore, we owe him everything, right? Because he gave everything, gave himself completely. That comes up later in this book. Um, gave himself as a ransom for all people. Some see that as, and this is theologically uh, sound, um, some see that the payment of Christ on the cross, listen, as being sufficient to save, enough to save the whole world, every single human being that ever lived, but effective only for those who come in faith. Another way to put it, only for those who God chose for whatever his reason. Okay. Um, who gave himself as a ransom for all people, verse 6, this has now been witnessed to at the proper time. Do you know that God had it down to the day when Jesus was supposed to show up? Not 10 years before that, not 30 years later, to the day. In Daniel 9, 24 to 27, he predicts it to the day. I won't go through the math. When we did Daniel, I did that. I had a big chart here. I don't know if you remember. Um, to the day, exactly at the right time he showed up. Um, we already talked about that. Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. Not 50% God, 50% man. He took on an additional nature of humanity so that he could die on the cross, suffer, rise from the dead as our representative. Verse 7, and for this purpose, I was appointed, chosen, that's what it means, a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles, okay? For that purpose, what purpose? Spreading the gospel, right? Jesus Christ. Paul was chosen. Who chose him? A committee? Jesus chose him. Do you remember? Um, a herald is a preacher, somebody that announces the gospel. It doesn't have to be in a public setting like this. It could be with two people having coffee together, and one is telling the other, Jesus Christ is the Savior. Here's the story. Here's my story kind of thing. A herald or and an apostle. Apostle means one who is sent officially by God. Um, Paul never met, as far as we know, Jesus during his earthly ministry. ministry. Later, on the road to uh, Damascus, he gets um, a wake-up call, you might say, from Jesus. Do you remember that? Uh, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. 
and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. That's an amazing thing because Paul was a Jew of Jews who only thought Judaism was the only correct religion, right? Um, okay, so that's the purpose. That's the thing that Jesus did as the mediator. There's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. No wonder there's been no other sacrifice. There's, been, there's no other way to get there. There's a lot of other theories. Good luck on those. There's only one. The only one stairway to heaven, to quote Led Zeppelin. Let's keep rolling, shall we? Verse 8, therefore I want men, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Lifting up holy hands was a, uh, was a common mode of prayer. It's surprising to Westerners to learn kneeling, praying was not the normal position, nor was sitting. Standing was the normal prayer posture. Raising up holy hands, do you have to do that? No, but you can. The point isn't raising up the hands, it's holy hands. What does that mean? Holy hands are ones that you're showing God, I have not been sinning, I am doing my best to live a godly life. It's not about the raising of the hands, although you certainly can do that. Nothing wrong with doing that. Um, I want men everywhere to pray. Doesn't mean women can't pray, by the way. There's all kinds of people, women praying in the Bible, but he's talking about the men everywhere in churches, praying, lifting up holy hands. Notice without anger <clears throat> or disputing. What's implied here is that that Ephesian church, there was some anger going on and some disputes, even in the midst of prayers. Can you have an angry prayer? Yes, you can. Lord, I hate the governor of my state, and I pray that you would just get him. It's an angry prayer. That's not what we're supposed to pray. Amen. Save him. Change his heart, Lord. Protect him. Help him lead by your spirit, not by his, right? So it's hard to do, depending on what state you live in. Anyway, um, so these are public prayers. As I said, pray without ceasing, 1 Thessalonians 5. Um, Men take the leading role, but women can certainly pray. Um, we already talked about that. Um, prayer, folks, is the nuclear weapon that we have that we seldom use, or we don't use correctly. James says, remember when we studied James last, you have not because you ask not. Ask that your joy may be full. And then when you ask and don't receive, it's because you, you're praying so you can get it to spend it on your own lusts or desires. Prayer is, I think when we get to heaven, that's going to be the shocker, that we had that kind of access to God and we seldom used it. Prayer is a, a, an unbelievably powerful thing. Um, the degree to which you believe is the degree to which you will pray. Because if you don't think anybody's up there or listening, why pray? Or your prayers aren't getting heard or answered. Last thing about prayer. Remember that there's three answers. Yes, no, and wait. Wait's the hard one, right? 
I very, very, very seldom have prayed and things have just, oh, there it is. Thank you. Have you ever wondered why doesn't God answer prayer that way? Why doesn't he just instantly answer prayer? Because it doesn't require any faith, right? And if it was a magic potion, then we'd be getting what we want. My will be done instead of his will. And his will and his timing is always perfect. Okay. I also want verse nine. Uh Uh-oh. The women. We've been talking about the men. Now, there's some things going on in the church in Ephesus. And there's some problems with women and their behavior. Let's get into it. I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. Okay, what's going on here? He wants them to dress modestly. Well, what was happening in Ephesus was there was a little bit of, there was a great um disparity you might say between the classes there were poor people coming to church there were some middle class people coming to church there were some crazy wealthy people coming to church the wealthy women could afford to really dress up to the nines or the elevens it wasn't uncommon for women to weave into their hair braid into their hair jewels or even gold a status symbol, like three Rolex watches, right? Why are you doing that? Calling attention to myself, showing off my wealth to make people that aren't as good looking or as wealthy or as fortunate as me feel bad. Really? Dress modestly. It's not a fashion show. Don't dress suggestively to attract men, ladies. Men Can I get an amen, men? We're visual, right? We're visual. So I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves, not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, which, by the way, is God impressed, do you think? Oh, look at the clothes on her. You think God's saying that? I don't think so. Look at those jewels. Not with elaborate hairstyles the braiding of hair and all that, gold, pearls, expensive clothes, but adorn yourself with what? Good deeds, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. I have a feeling, I'm not a woman, and by the way, there's such a thing as a woman and a man, you can't join the women's swim team if you're a man. Okay, I'm not a woman, but I would suspect that women recognize that men are visual, and that they get looks, and they get adoration, maybe even, do I dare say it, worship, in a way, right? When you come to worship God, you ought to come into the church with the attitude, I want to be invisible, and just focus upward and outward to God, not not to the exclusion of being friendly to other people, but it ain't about me or you. Okay, so women, um, it's not a fashion show. A a newcomer comes to church and she's very poor and she feels like, ah, maybe I don't fit in here. Um, Men are looking where they shouldn't look. There's all kinds of reasons where um, 
the attitude is more important than the fashion show, if you will. Um, do we have time? Barely. Um, I won't have you turn there, but first Peter three says, let your beauty, he's talking to women, be not be external, braiding hair, gold, fine clothes, but inner, per, the inner person of the heart, the lasting beauty of a tranquil, gentle spirit, precious in God's sight. Um, this isn't to say that men can't make the same sort of mistakes, and that will come up later, but we're going to quit in a second here. I'm just looking if we should dive into, well, I'll introduce the subject, and we'll talk about it next week. Look at verse 11 real fast. This is going to be a little controversial for you ladies. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. And then he goes on and talks about Adam and Eve. What's going on here? You might be surprised next week. It might not be exactly as bad as it sounds. As a matter of fact, I'll show you next week that compared to Judaism and Islam, Christianity elevates women a thousand trillion miles upward compared to any other world religion. Shall we pray? Getting dirty looks, from, dirty looks from the women. Okay. I'm glad I'm in an unmarked car. Nobody knows which car is mine. Let's pray, and we'll see you next week, hopefully, and we'll continue. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could spend in your word, always fruitful. We give praise to you that your spirit is the one that teaches this Bible study, not me. We know that we are some of those sinners that Jesus came for, and that he saved us, God, and we're so grateful. So our glory, uh, the glory that we give is to you and to you only and to your son, Jesus, the one mediator. Thank you. We give thanksgiving in our prayers for that reason. Help us to persevere when we're in a tough ministry position like Timothy, God, never to give up. Help us to remember that we are to pray evangelically for unbelievers that you've put into our life, old friends, family members, people that are our neighbors, people we work with or go to school with. Thank you that the mediator stepped in between you, God, and us to be our representative. That's the only reason we are called your children and we can call you father. Help us to conduct ourselves in church so that we don't draw attention to ourselves, but rather our attention, our worship, our focus is upward to you. For indeed, all the glory is yours, Father, and none is ours. Use us for your glory this week, Father. We give thanks to you as we celebrate Palm Sunday and then Easter. Help us be thinking about who we can invite to church in a week and a half. Thank you for this time. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thanks for being here, those of you on Zoom. And those of you that are here, make sure you say hello to someone. Introduce yourself to someone you don't know. Very important. God bless all of you on Zoom. See you soon. God bless.